I had no desire to run my own business. In fact, all I wanted was the printing service. If Fuji or Kodak or Agfa had launched that service that month, I would have said, oh, that's great. I'll use that and torn up the bits of paper. Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to Graham Hobson. Graham founded Photobox in 2000, a photo printing service that was the first of its kind and became a category leader in the UK market. Graham speaks candidly about the struggles of the first five years of the business and some of the regrets during the scaling period as well. I actually thought I was having a heart attack, but it was just panic attacks. Um, and I, I really didn't know what to do. Felt like the company should fire me because I was so out of my depth. There were many significant moments for Graham and his time at Photobox, including acquiring Moonpig in 2011 for £120 million and then leaving the company after 17 years. You know, people ask me, was it emotional? Was it like leaving my baby? And, you know, 17 years is a long time. I felt like I'd worked for four completely different companies during that time. He also shares his current ventures of supporting startups and why he's tackling extreme wealth. I feel like the very people that can afford to pay more at the moment and not suffer any loss of lifestyle are the ones who aren't being asked to contribute more. And so this is the founder of Photobox, Graham Hobson. Enjoy. Graham, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your career before you founded Photobox? Yeah, to go way back, I wasn't very academic at school and didn't really enjoy it. And I left at 16. Um, but I had a teacher that encouraged me to get more involved with tech. And uh, I ended up doing a couple of terrible A-levels and scraped through a, a degree in computer science. But that put me on a course to have a career, early career in um, investment banking tech, which was amazing because I suddenly had the chance to be in an exciting industry and use my tech skills and build up, you know, income and network and all the things that people hope to do in their 20s. So that was my life up until I was about 35. And at that point, I was, uh, I, I'm married and I have three grown men as my children <laughs> these days in their 20s. But at the time, I had a couple of very small boys. And it was only really at that point in my career when I was starting to think about doing my own thing. And it looks like you kind of went straight out of university onto the, the London Stock Exchange. What was that like? It was, I don't know, I took it for granted, I suppose. At the, at the time, you if you did go to uni, and by the way, I was lucky enough to go to uni and not have to pay for university fees. Uh, I think it was pretty much a free third tier education in the early 80s in the UK, which is not the case today, obviously. But um, I went and... There was this thing called the milk round. It probably still exists where when you're coming up to the end of your degree, you get courted by companies that want to take you on. And I had a couple of offers. One was the London Stock Exchange and one was a company I can't even remember in High Wycombe. And I, for some bizarre reason, I seemed to favour the High Wycombe job. And my dad said, are you crazy? <laughs> Go and work for the London Stock Exchange. And I did. So I ended up going in there with a very junior role. I think my first salary was nine grand a year. But it was, yeah, amazing. And and they were the type of employer going through their own boom at the time. And they were very keen on investing in people. And they sent me on lots of training. And I feel like my maturing as an adult really only started around that time. And you've spoken about witnessing some immoral 
act during your time in banking and finance? Are you allowed to talk about those? And if not, do you feel like that shaped who you wanted to be as a business person at all? Yeah, I I mean, I didn't witness any like hardcore crimes or anything, but I worked for three investment banks after the London Stock Exchange. And it was everything that you've ever seen in a movie about the 80s and yuppies and investment banking and uh, liars poker and, you know, every financial book that's been written. It was a largely unregulated industry that was awash in cash and people who had a very high opinion of their own skills and importance in the world. And there was a lot of bad behavior and uh, a lot of drinking, quite a lot of drugs. Yeah, it was, you know, I didn't know what to expect. So I was kind of looking on a bit bemused and feeling safely separated away behind my tech firewall of what was going on, even though I was sitting on a trading floor for, for most of those years. Um, yeah, it, it was a weird time. And um, I was involved with bearings and I left. And shortly after that, the bank collapsed because of a rogue trader who, who was actually a lovely guy called Nick Leeson, but had made some very poor decisions in his professional career. And, you know, stuff like this was going on. And there was a time in the early 90s, maybe around 93, 94, where I felt like suddenly everybody was copping on and realizing that you can't take unlimited risk and you can't walk over your own customers and you can't treat employees so badly. And a lot of controls came into that industry in the mid 90s, which were for the better, but it felt like a transformation from the Wild West into something a bit more civilized. And you then went on to found Photobox in 2000. Yes. Did you always want to have your own business? Not at all. No, I, like I said, I was 35 when I started Photobox and I'd never, even though I'd had this good career, I'd never managed anybody else. I was a, an individual contributor, you might say. And I didn't want to run my own business. I just, it got to the point where we were taking lots of pictures of our two young children and I would go off to Boots every couple of weeks with a roll of film. And it felt like, there wasn't a lot of intentionality or choice about that. I was getting back 36 pictures, some of which were terrible and the flash didn't go off and they were out of focus. And I wanted to be more selective about the pictures that we took and printed and uh, and kept. And so I bought a digital camera, which was a fun new gadget you could buy in 99 with pretty good quality. And I just discovered there was no way to get prints, nowhere on the high street, nowhere online. And inkjet printers were a terrible option then and still are. And I thought, this is crazy. It's, I think the way my mind has always worked is oversimplifying things, you know, definitely a sketching on a napkin type person. And I was thinking all it would take is, you know, a website, which everybody is spinning up at this time in 1999 and some kind of order management system, which I'm capable of building. And one of those big fat printers you see in the back of every single boot store. So this is not rocket science, it's just basic stuff. Uh, and I started to write a plan when I was on the tube every day for a couple of weeks and got to the point where I showed it to people. And because there was such an internet frenzy going on, uh, like boom time in the internet in late 1999, people looked at this idea I had and said, well, if you do it, we'll back you. And it got to the point where 
I'd had the difficult conversation with my wife who was rationally skeptical about it, uh, about me jumping out from a well-paid career to a, a leap in the dark. And she was okay with it. I'd convinced a friend to come in as a co-founder. And I went back to those people who said they were interested and said, okay, you're on. And I think within the space of a week, I'd raised £480,000, which was a weird thing. I had effectively 10 sheets of paper that was a very thin business plan, me and a bank account with 480 grand in it. And I felt like a complete fraud, like I might have to <laughs> disappear off to Cuba or something. But, you know, it's a funny thing. You, you've, you've made some wild promise to people and now you have to follow through. And where do you feel like that entrepreneurial drive came from? To the confidence to piece together the idea, pitch it to people, raise the money. Where do you feel like that came from? It certainly didn't come from a place of wanting to create a business. I had no desire to run my own business. In fact, all I wanted was the printing service. If Fuji or Kodak or Agfa had launched that service that month, I would have said, oh, that's great. I'll use that and torn up the bits of paper. So it didn't come from a need to be an entrepreneur. It didn't come from a point of bravery because the whole thing terrified me. I think I just, you know, there's a thread in other people who describe themselves as entrepreneurs that they see the world slightly differently. They have their own ideas about how things should work, but the world doesn't work that way. So they try and change the world to fit their model. And there was certainly an element of that. I think I always looked at things slightly differently. You know, I, I don't want to self-diagnose, but uh, I've been reading a lot from other people's comments about ADHD recently. And I think looking back at school, I, I almost certainly had ADHD and I put it down to being an only child and just not being <laughs> so socially uh, practiced. But now I recognize the lack of focus I had on things that didn't interest me, the hyper focus on things that did, lots of imaginary conversations in my head uh, and, and making very completely random connections between things. Like I'd often watch some TV program and say, oh, do doesn't that person remind you of that, that other person we know? And my wife would say, no, that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't remind me at all. But I'd often spot things deep in my mind of what was connected. And I think I was doing that in the real world. And, and, and again, like seeing this machine in the back of boots and a, and a website idea and thinking, well, why can't I put those two things together? It's out of curiosity and exploration but definitely not a desire to run my own business so i just want to go hop back a, a moment to the start of photo box and when you raised that money i think a lot of the questions that entrepreneurs or startup founders have or especially people who want to go and start a business question that they have is how do you raise money and where do you find it how did you go about raising the money that you raised well, it was a different age. And I certainly think that I've never seen a time harder to raise money than now for a number of reasons. And it, it's not just the last three months. I've seen it get gradually harder over the years because it's not, just not so easy to pitch anymore. It used to be, you could say, you know that thing that's really popular in an analog way or you know in the real world, and we want to take that online. People would just get it. And then there was a phase you know, five years ago when we were saying we'd be the Uber for such and such, and people would just get it. But now there's so much competition and so much broad coverage of services that people need in their daily lives. It's just not so easy to explain anymore what you do in simple terms. So I think it's harder to excite investors now and then you know in the last three years with covid and ukraine and and global economic forces we've just seen over a, a big tightening in 
VCs and angel investors' um, criteria and willingness to part with cash. So I think it is tough now. Um, but at, at the time, you know, I can definitely recommend launching a business in a boom <laughs> because uh, everybody's in a bit of a frenzy. Everybody's in a hurry to to pitch in, and and that's certainly where we were in late '99. You know, the underlying thing is you've got to have a great pitch deck. You've got to be very capable of articulating what it is you're doing, how it can scale, why you believe that it will work and, and steps you've taken in the early days to prove that some of your hypotheses are correct. It's remarkable how many pitches I see where the people just haven't really investigated enough about what they're talking about or, or taken very basic steps to learn and, and test their concept and not take too big a risk. I give some talks these days to young people and to University of Westminster where I went. And the first bit of advice is just make sure you feel ready. You know, a lot of people declare themselves as, as entrepreneurs and want to rush out straight out of education and be an entrepreneur. But, you know, it took me 14 years before I felt I was in the place to have the foundations in my life to make it possible. And I'm not saying to people to delay their dreams but you know give yourself a chance and work in the industry that you plan to disrupt because you need some basic understanding of how it works before you go in with a completely new angle on on that industry obviously anyone who starts a business there is typically highs and there's lows throughout different periods of as, as you're operating your business were there any highs uh, particularly high points or low points throughout your uh, experience of, of running photobox Yes, and, and the low points I, I can remember much more readily than the high points. The first five years were, were a big low point. Myself and Mark, who, who I'd convinced to come in as a co-founder, we'd built a small company and a small website that offered a small number of products for techie guys in their 30s. I think that was our core audience back then that had digital cameras and wanted to get prints. And within two or three weeks of us launching in May 2000, there was a massive crash in the NASDAQ market and tech stocks fell out of favor in a way that they'd never before. And it just became impossible to raise money then. And we had somebody lined up to put you know, a significant amount of money into the business, I think a million pounds, and it didn't turn up and we kept chasing it and it didn't turn up. But we we had to resign ourselves to hibernating and becoming a small business with no other employees. And that recession that got kicked off at that time lasted about 18 months, I think. And when we were coming out of that recession, I made a massive mistake by not recognizing the fact that A, we delivered everything we said in the business plan that we were going to do. And we were already, even though we were a small company, we were a significant player in the UK market for that service. And I should have started shouting about that and raising money, but for some reason I didn't. And we went through five incredibly lean years. And I say we, not just me and my co-founder, but me and my family. And I think they sacrificed a lot of, first of all, me focusing relentlessly on the business and being quite stressed about it. And also just us having no money. I gave up posh coffees every morning, every lunchtime, because those, those two, three quid a day per coffee just couldn't afford it. No hot chocolates for the kids, no foreign holidays, sold my car, remortgaged the house. So I regret now in retrospect that I didn't recognize that terrible rut we were in and get out of it sooner. And, and eventually in 2005, I, I reached the breaking point of saying, can't do this anymore. Got to grow the company, raise money or give up. And we did that. And that next phase kicked off in early 2006. 
But the other low points were during the scaling years, which worked really well generally, I had this massive burnout. <laughs> I just overcommitted myself to what I could deliver, felt out of my depth. I actually thought I was having a heart attack at, you know, maybe I was 40 or something, early 40s, but it was just panic attacks. I really didn't know what to do, felt like the company should fire me because I was so out of my depth. But I was lucky that I was, you know, family support and really great support at work from the new CEO that we'd brought in to navigate me through that. And I now look back and recognize exactly what went wrong at that time and how I could have avoided it. But um, that was a definite personal low point. And then, of course, the many, many code reds over the years, the, the points when the service is down, it was my job to fix it. I'd become the CTO since 2006. And just some absolute stonkers of things that you couldn't imagine would go wrong in a business, but did. But yeah, those, those are the low points. The high points, I just don't remember them in the same way. But there was more of this continual growth in the company, certainly from 2006 onwards, that everything just went up every month and you almost lost track of it happening. There was no one big launch, one big product that suddenly transformed us, but everything edged up and uh, we kept growing. We, we've spoken to a few founders on this podcast and I think there's definitely a handful who, when they look back, they do look back to the very early years of starting the business and there have been a handful who have said they probably spent too long in the business and definitely not enough time with family with friends and things like that looking back is that for you is that something that you'd change if you if you had a second chance yes definitely but i i think it only comes with maturity and experience and i just didn't have enough of it then to navigate my way through in, and and optimize it at the time i mean these days i work I do more pro bono work than paid work, but I still work for a few clients. And I'm, I'm, for example, an interim CTO for one of my clients right now. And honestly, in eight to 12 hours a week, I get done what used to take me a whole week <laughs> to do when I was full time, uh, just because I know how to manage things, how to stay on top of things, how to delegate work properly. I think I was one of those people that didn't really know how to get the best from people when I started out. And uh, used to take on tricky tasks myself out of fear of overloading people that work for me. So it just was horribly inefficient. But now I think I know how to balance my time and, you know, enjoy life. And there was definitely a point in those early years of Photobox where I realized I kept thinking, if I can just get to this point in, in terms of growth, you know, income, whatever, it'll be good for my family. But I was always focused on this future date, whereas now, of course, I realized, you know, your career has to be about the journey and, and enjoying every day, every week, not just some random point in the future. So for those that are listening to this podcast now, how would you say, well, for you personally as well, but also for, for those listening as a, maybe a piece of advice, how do you overcome the low moments in a business like that? And how do you build resilience from it? I, I mean, one thing I wasn't doing in those early years, which I do a lot now, is talking to other people. And I think I was felt too busy, too much head down, you know, too much in the in the trenches to to really articulate what I was going through and the challenges. And I think when I did start to get some time and go out and meet people for coffee, even if I was advising them, just having that two way conversation about challenges what's going on in their lives, how they're overcoming it. I would always come back or come out of those conversations thinking, I know how to solve that problem now. So I think 
you've got to talk to people, first of all. You've got to look after yourself as well. I mean, I think in 2007, when I had that burnout, I realized I wasn't eating well, I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't exercising. And I made all of those changes when I realized I had to. Um, and, you know, I'm big into running these days and, uh, you know, feel I'm healthy. And so I, I think you've got to look after yourself and you've got to talk to other people. And and I think also it sounds easy for me now, but to be generous with my time, I feel helps me a lot it, it, to help other people and listen to their challenges uh, helps me put things in perspective as well. In 2011, Photobox acquired Moonpig for £120 million. I imagine that must have been quite a significant moment for you and the business. Uh, Would you mind telling us that story? People ask me afterwards if we regretted buying them for such a large sum of money, and and I never did, and it, it all worked out brilliantly. But, yeah, the background to that was in 2010, which was four years into our European journey, European scale-up journey, we had, I'd been personally in the business for 10 years at that point. We had several VC investors and they'd been in the business for four years at that point. And we were starting to think what happens next. And we were very conscious of the fact that our investors were looking for a return. And so one of the ideas we had was, well, let's merge with a much larger company or be acquired by a much larger company and be part of a global photographic brand because Kodak had disappeared without trace at that point. And we thought there's an opportunity to create this global brand. And we got very, very far down a conversation with an overseas buyer to make that happen. And in our minds, it was all done. You know, the contracts were drawn up, the the term sheets were all agreed, the lawyers were engaged, everything was happening. And in the summer of 2010, for reasons we still don't fully understand, but these things happen, it just fell apart, the deal fell apart. And we were reflecting on why were we not compelling enough to buy? What was it that put the buyer off? What allowed them to get distracted? And we came to the conclusion that there was some weakness in our business and in the sale process that enabled it to fall apart. First of all, when you sell a business, it has to be an auction process. You have to have multiple buyers interested, which might be companies or the public markets or private equity or any of those sources, but you have to have multiple people bidding. And if you don't, then the one remaining bidder will detect the weakness and either walk away or or lowball you. Um, So we didn't have that. And we had several things that prevented us from having that bidding process. We weren't big enough in revenue or profit terms to do an IPO. We had this structural weakness in that we were very, very sensitive to the pre-Christmas sales period. and, And that created a lot of risk in the business. If we got things wrong during that time, it could drastically alter our profit for the year. And for whatever, you know, all of these reasons, we said, how could we prevent this ever happening again? And for a set of reasons that aren't completely obvious initially, Moonpig was the answer. We said, if we take Moonpig and bolt on this very fast growing popular company that has different seasonality to us, a different customer base, a different range of products, and put the two companies together under the hood, there's a lot of synergy and a lot of similarity, but um, in terms of the customer facing business, very different. And I'd known Nick for many years. We'd, we were aware of each other from the early days. We used to print mugs and T-shirts for his customers, and he used to print cards for us. 
And we even talked about putting the business together in something like 2006 or 2007. And he quoted me a price that, of course, was a tiny, tiny fraction of what we ended up buying it for. And I said that was ridiculous. It was too high. But we ended up buying them very leveraged purchase. We know it was uh, lots of new VCs came in at that round. And we also took on a lot of debt at that round. But yeah, we acquired Moonpig in 2011. And that business was part of the group until long after I left, but it IPOs last year as a separate entity. So they split it off again. The final question I've got for now, just before I hand back over to Alex, is the part where you left Photobox after 17 years uh, in 2017. Was that a difficult decision for you? It, it wasn't. You know, 17 years is a long time. I felt like I'd worked for four completely different companies during that time. I felt that myself, I'd changed beyond all recognition in terms of my experience and my stage of life. Um, so I was ready to move on. I was CEO for the first six years. I was then CTO for about eight years. And then I had various other roles in the business for the last couple of years. But I knew the company was in safe hands. It had a very, very strong leadership team, which brought to the table amazing skills that I never had. I remember once in 2012, we did this kind of Myers-Briggs uh, type exercise of looking at each personality type and strengths. It was something called strength scope. And round the table, we had every single area of the circle covered. And it, it was very uh, apparent that part of the reason why we solved problems so effectively, but also argued so much was we all came to the table with completely different mindset and different set of skills. And that diversity of thought, I think, really helped us um, succeed. But anyway, I was very confident that we had a great team and a huge machine at that point. I mean, the business was in 19 countries and had 1400 employees. And uh, so nobody would notice me going. <laughs> so, so I stepped away and uh, you know, people ask me, was it emotional? Was it like leaving my baby? And and no, it felt like a mature company that was on a good track. And I did what anybody I think would do in my place, which is I made a plan to take at least six months off and just <laughs> recharge and reset and do lots of boring things like clear out the attic, but also learn some new skills and do some traveling. Uh, and then um, inevitably I got a bit bored and went back to work for somebody else. You're now a strategy and tech advisor for startups and scale-ups, and you've helped loads of young companies with funding and advice since your exit. What made you want to give back in that way? I think my wife said to me uh, when I was leaving Photobox back in 2017, don't, don't be at home strumming the guitar all the time. You know, she, she has her workspace and her, uh, her uh, schedule. And so that was partly on my mind. And when I first left Photobox, I had a rule of no Netflix before 6pm, but that was never really an issue because I just filled my diary with so much stuff, meetings and networking and, you know, going to see some early stage startups and getting involved in some pro bono stuff. And I realized I love the structure and I, I feel like I've now got freedom of how I spend my time. So it was nice to pick some things where people appreciated the advice and could benefit from it. So it's still the same today. I, my diary is packed. I like having that structure and that work ethic, even if I'm not getting paid for it. And yeah, I'm, I'm just not the type of person to play golf, never have been, but <laughs> I find it difficult to relax. I'm not a kind of lying on a deck chair type person. And with all that, as on top of that, you're also a founding member of Patriotic Millionaires UK, which is a group that aims to leverage the voice of wealth to build a more just and stable and inclusive economy and to accelerate the end of extreme wealth. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because you're, you're, you're very open about your views on wealth and, and how those that can should give back. How do you think that 
should work? What What is your view on extreme wealth? Yeah, I think there was a, a moment in time where I it, this came together in my head, which was in early 2020, I'd worked for another company that was a, a kind of tidy up and turnaround situation, a, a SaaS business, and that was sold in early 2020. So I found myself, you know, back at home again. And I was prepared to, at that time to do some advisory and some non-exec work and getting used to using Zoom more. And then, of course, COVID hit and we were all locked down at home. And I think it got to about April and I was just thinking, you know, this is terrifying for people, but I'm here with my family, you know, my wife and my three boys, and we're in a nice house and we have a garden to go out into for fresh air and we can get food delivered to the house. And everything is fine. I'm not worried about furlough or salary or anything. I'm, I'm fine. But for 99% of the population, it wasn't that way. There was a lot of anxiety and some people had to go out and work even though they were worried for their health. And some people were incredibly worried about finances. And at the time I was focused on, I did a kind of quick calculation that I think uh, the initial amount of money that was pledged to put in for COVID support by the government was around £70 billion. And I was thinking, that's £70 billion that wasn't planned to be spent. And even if the government's willing to write a cheque now for that amount of money, eventually society has to pay for that. And that might come by uh, increased debt uh, and reduced public services in future years. So I was thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if, as a show of solidarity, people who could afford to pay into that sum could and would. And I did a back of the envelope calculation that for a one-off wealth tax on people who had more than 5 million in investable assets. And I came up with some structure that I could raise 70 billion. And so I put this message on a, on a network that I'm in and said, I want to pay more tax. And it was a network of founders and got back some really positive support and some good ideas. But I was asking for connections to treasury, government, different organizations that could tell me whether this idea had any traction. And a lot of things I tried over those weeks dead-ended. Uh, I ended up speaking to my MP and the Treasury and Campaign for Social Justice and Optimus and a few other organizations. But I found a letter in the US uh, on the web called Millionaires for Humanity, which was basically arguing the same thing in the US. So I signed it. And there were quite a few other people in the UK that signed this letter as well. And we ended up forming this group, Patriotic Millionaires. And we were never happy with the name, but it kind of says what we are and uh, we've kind of grown, <laughs> grown to accept it. But yeah, our position is that there are some people who've inherited wealth and some that have created wealth through their businesses, but we've all had a foundation of privilege and an investment that's enabled us to generate that wealth. So for my part, yes, I created a business from scratch, but it only worked because I had access to a healthy, well-educated workforce, to a society that had invested in innovation like broadband and, and smartphones, um, and a safe and well-regulated business and tax structure in the UK that enabled me to create a business and eventually extract some wealth from it. And so I have a great debt to society for making all that possible. It's not that I magicked up this company out of nothing. And the crazy thing was when I sold the first tranche of my shares, I only paid 10% tax because there was this thing called entrepreneur's allowance. And you know I could have paid a lot more and I would have been happy to. And now I realize that lower 
taxes than the average working family is very, very common for anyone who has high net wealth. And people pay lower taxes on investment income, lower taxes on business um, returns. I feel like the very people that can afford to pay more at the moment and not suffer any loss of lifestyle are the ones who aren't being asked to contribute more. So uh, yes, that's what we're we're working to to change. And do you feel that aspiring entrepreneurs should have this mindset from the off? I think it's for everybody individually. I mean, you know, a lot one of the comments we get quite often is, well, if you want to give more money, why don't you just donate it to the government? And the thing is that a few a handful of people can do that, but the way that you really change society for the better is by having laws and tax structures that make it clear that everybody has to participate. There's this thing called the social contract in the UK, which is the government pledges to provide us with healthcare and education and somewhere to live and welfare and all the things that we would need in our lives at some point. But in return, we have to pay our taxes. And so to make changes structurally so that we're not starting to hoard wealth in the top 0.1% of people's hands is uh, much better than individuals just giving their money. So it needs structural changes. Throughout your extensive career, are there any memorable or defining moments that stick out to you? I'm trying to think if there was anything really stand out. I think there are lots of points in my life where I look back and reflect that I was given a choice or some counselling or some training and it really changed the way I look at things. You know, early on in my London Stock Exchange job, they sent me on a training course around uh, something that sounds incredibly boring and probably is uh, data modeling. And, um, you know, the ability to understand a business model and represent it in terms of database tables and relationships. And, and it's a techie skill, but I just found that so valuable. The ability to kind of walk in, have a conversation with somebody and understand how data represents their business and recognizing that often the model you build in your head of something is quite faulty and it needs to be refined over time that was a, a technical skill five days on a training course in west london but it was it really was transformative for me in understanding the world and business and getting to the point where you can talk to any business and understand their data and and how they really operate under the hood and helping them to optimize that. So, but I've been lucky enough to have lots of great advice from different people over the years and it all adds up to making better decisions the older I get. <laughs> what would you say the biggest lessons you've learned is? I think I'm I was very always a very impetuous person and I always wanted to be very action oriented and dive in. And I think now I know better to articulate to other people what I'm trying to achieve and getting feedback and testing the waters. And when I look back on the early days of Photobox, we were very lean. We didn't have money to throw at building big projects or hiring lots of people. So we did everything in a very experimental way. And that was lucky. We had some well-funded competitors that were throwing money at things and failing. And Years later, I read the book, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And it's a great book because it really teaches you that don't spend a year building some cathedral of, of a system to only to find that nobody wants to use it. it. It's all about what can you do in two weeks with sellotape and post-it notes to prove whether or not your business idea is valid and people are interested in it and willing to engage with it. So I think that's 
that's a great approach and I really recommend any startup people to read that book. And the other thing is that it's so important to understand why your business exists and what value you are bringing to the world and to your customers. And most people, including me, started with, I've got a product I want. And yeah, no, it's it's no surprise. I want to build a business that grows quickly and generates money. And, th- and that's the mindset I had at the beginning. And I think it was many years later that we in Photobox connected much more with our purpose and what value we were trying to bring to our customers. And that's really when the business took off. So these days, talking to early stage founders, I get them to stop talking about the product they're offering and instead start with what's the purpose of your business? What's your mission? What 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 is it that you're bringing to the world? And how will you measure the success of that, some kind of North Star metric? And then show me your business model and how that drives that, that North Star metric and that mission forward. Because most people just dive into the product and don't really think about connecting it with why they exist or how how the different parts of the business model interact with each other. And do you have any core principles that you tend to follow that you feel have led to your success or that you use in your own personal life as well? I think I've always been a fair person. If I'm negotiating with somebody over something, I'm not going to beat them down to the lowest possible price because it it has to be a good deal for the person across the table from you as well. So I feel like I've always treated people fairly and with respect and try and find the middle ground in any dispute. And and I think people would describe me as a nice guy to deal with, you know, friendly and not aggressive and uh, and fair. And, and I really think that that has just led to so much of my business career going smoothly without conflict and with good opportunity. And I haven't wasted energy on aggression or <laughs> the aftermath of, you know, feeling cheated or, or hard done by it. So maybe it's karma and maybe it's uh, just avoiding (laughs) hostility, but I think that served me well. The last question I've got for you today, Graham, is uh, who is it that inspires you in business? Is there anyone that you look to for inspiration? There's really no one person. I think you can look at some of the kind of big names in business and they are brilliant in some things and and deeply flawed in their character in other ways. I, I just... I love reading and listening to podcasts and TED Talks. And, and so I feel like I absorb lots of ideas and histories and philosophies from different people. And I always get very excited about the current book I'm reading. I'm actually reading Simon Sinek, The Infinite Game at the moment, which is effectively about how do you build a resilient business that lasts over time and delivers value over time and not just you know, optimizes for one moment uh, and and extraction of value. And I think a lot of the things he's saying resonate with me and uh, lots of interesting ideas I hadn't thought about before. So yeah, just really broad mix of people and stories and books that uh, that keep me up to date on what people are thinking. That is all the questions we've got for you today, Graham. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps.